0: I've actually got two sermons and so you'll have to forgive me but one is because of some things that are going on in our world and the other is what I wanted to be able to preach today to help you understand a little bit more about the faith life. Number one, some of you might not be aware but being a pastor and and walking in in Twitter pastor circles pastor Twitter circles, whatever and Facebook and uh, reading pastor related news uh, some of you are probably not aware that Canada... Passed a law the end of last year that took effect uh, early this week that prohibits uh, conversion therapy. And, and if you're not familiar with conversion therapy, it's a counseling practice that began a number of years ago that was intensive and overbearing and too much, really, even from a Christian perspective, of trying to convert young people who were struggling with their sexuality and bring them back to biblical sexual ethics but in a way that was overbearing and forceful and did not re- pl- rely upon salvation, but relied upon legalism. And so we would say that was a bad practice. And so localities and, and local governments, they started passing laws outlawing conversion therapy because they saw it as overbearing. And even as Christians, we would agree. But Canada's law is written in such a way that conversion therapy as d- is... Uh, is Described as any effort by anyone to convince someone who believes themselves to be gay, transgender, or on any um, other of the, the spectrums available to us when it's related to sexual morality, it, it, it is uh, illegal to try and convince them to assume a different sexual ethic. So in other words, if someone says they're gay, and you as a, as a friend say, But the Bible says you could potentially be prosecuted. Pastors who preach a biblical sexual ethic or morality stand the possibility of being prosecuted underneath this new Canadian law and imprisoned for up to, if they are so convicted, up to five years. Not because they are being legalist, not because they are being overbearing, but simply because they are Faithfully teaching biblical sexual morality. And so Canadian pastors on the Twitter sphere and and other social media sites begged all the pastors who are biblically faithful in Canada and biblically faithful pastors in the United States to at least take time today to stand for biblical sexual morality to stand up and say that the Bible has expectations that it teaches clearly regarding our sexual ethic, and we as Christians must be faithful to standing for these things, not in a way that is hateful or condemnatory, but in a way that is gracious and yet firm. And I want you to understand something about biblical sexual morality, that it is not rooted in Christians hating a certain type of person or in us being wrapped up in legalism saying you have to do this to be saved, but instead it is that we understand salvation brings with it freedom from an old way of life and the ability to finally live the way that God would long for us to live according to the standards that He's clearly taught. Genesis 1.27 says this, God created man in His own image. In other words, we are unique amongst creation, and we are highly valued. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So when we see the distinctions between the two sexes, and we can see them, these are distinctions and characteristics given to us not by evolution or nature, but instead by a loving God who created us male and female. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 talks about the creation of Eve from the bone of Adam and the dust of the earth. And then in response to seeing Eve, uh, the, the pastoral joke is that uh, she's woman because Adam went, whoa, man. Uh, but but uh, here's what Scripture actually says. It says, And the man said, This one at last after going through all the animals of creation as potential partners in life, he says, finally, there's somebody who's like me, but different. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And then it says specifically, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. In other words, the creation ethic that we are given for sexuality is one man, one woman, forever. That's what God has established. Now, listen, if, if you have a, a life experiences that have taken you other places, this is not to condemn, this is to help you understand God's perfect and beautiful standard that all of us can finally live up to Because we walk in Christ Jesus But it's also something that we should strive To see every believer living One man, one woman, one lifetime And if you've made mistakes or had issues, guess what? Today is a new day If you start again and live this You are walking in righteousness Alright, so that doesn't mean if there has been divorce Or is divorce That you need to be like, well there's no hope for me I can't live a biblical sexual ethic That's untrue it's start today and live today forward, a redeemed person. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Now we dive into the Old Testament, and this is where we like to beat people up as we use Old Testament verses regarding sexuality. But I want you to understand something. There are a couple verses, in fact, just two, that talk about the act of homosexuality. Things, though, that, that Scripture prohibits in the Old Testament familial intimacy. I tried to use words because I didn't know what kids might be in here, young youth. So you understand what I'm talking about, right, without having to go into detail. And when the Bible talks about familial intimacy in Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy, you would actually be really surprised about how detailed it gets. I mean, we're not talking about just the people in your house. We're talking about the people in the house next door and next door and two or three generations removed. The Bible is specific that familial intimacy is a prohibited act amongst God's people. Adultery. And there's no conditions here. Adultery is prohibited, period. Same-sex intimacy is prohibited, according to the Levitical law. Intimacy with an animal is prohibited. And that doesn't just mean you've got the cat on your chest and you like to hear it purr, right? You get what we're saying. That that there are specific acts of intimacy that are prohibited by God's standards, and it's not just homosexuality or transgenderism. In fact, these things could describe potential acts for any of us. And so all of us must be careful to walk in a biblical sexual ethic. Leviticus 18 and 20 give the details on some of these. When we read in Deuteronomy, it actually gives other details about sexual and intimate ethics. And then we get to the teachings of Jesus. Because a lot of folks like to come to Jesus and they read Jesus and they go, but Jesus never said it was wrong. Now, if we went and built a list of all the things that Jesus never said were wrong, specifically in the the Gospels, we would have this huge list of sinful things that we were able to do, in all honesty. Because there are many things that Jesus did not teach explicitly on because he either taught in implying that he supported and, and affirmed the Old Testament standards, or it was so stupidly common for you to not behave that way that he felt like he didn't need to teach it. So when we get to the teach excuse me the teaching of Jesus we can see some things reiterated. If the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation account gives us the ethic of one man one woman one lifetime Jesus, in replying to others regarding divorce, says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and so the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Can you see Jesus affirming that Genesis chapter 2 Ethic regarding marriage and sexuality. As we look and we continue on, we can see some things that he says that don't specifically mention all of our potential violations of sexual ethic, but in the word that he uses, he is affirming all of the prohibitions in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Here's what he says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts... Sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. In other words, Jesus, in speaking of ethics and what makes someone unclean or evil, he says it includes things like how we think, Sexual immoralities, which in the, in the Greek, the original Greek that, that uh, the, the gospel was written in, it's the word porneia. And some of you might recognize that word uh, or something that we've derived from that word, pornography. But porneia means anything, anything that breaks the Old Testament standards of sexual morality. Anything. So remember, that included things like family, Pets, neighbors, anybody that you're not married to. One man, one woman, one lifetime. And so Jesus, in this verse and one that matches it in Matthew, explicitly affirms Old Testament sexual ethic. So when we say Jesus never taught about, and we list this sexual sin, I'm going to tell you with this one word, In two different Gospels, Jesus talked about it. And He was explicit. If you practice it, you are defiled, evil, and He would say outside of the kingdom of God if you continue in it. And so when we we look then at at other things that Jesus has to say about sexual ethic, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. And and everybody in the crowd would have gone, Amen, we read that in the Old Testament. Hey, that's in the Ten Commandments. Amen, Jesus. And then Jesus says this, But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes and he moves it from the action to the thought and the desire. And says that if you live in that desire even, You have already committed the sin. And so a lifestyle of accepting that desire and those thoughts is a lifestyle of adultery. And we can transfer this to every sexual sin and actually all of the Old Testament standards because Jesus goes on and says, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered them. You've broken two of the commandments already just by your thoughts. Adultery and murder. Good job. You need a savior. I'm here for you is what Jesus would have said. So what we see in Jesus' teaching is that he affirms the Old Testament standards. There is no question that if Jesus were here today physically and he were preaching, he would, you could go, Jesus, what do you think about the Old Testament sexual standards? Didn't you love everybody and everything was acceptable? And he would say, absolutely not. The Old Testament is still God's perfect standard and we should seek to live up to it. He affirmed the Old Testament sexual ethic. And what's interesting is he increases the application from just action to thoughts as well. So someone who says they are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't even have to commit the act. Instead, you can live in a life of thought regarding the act and still be sinning. And so it's important for us to understand Jesus did not lower the bar on sexual ethics. He actually raised it. He took it from not your family, not your pets, not your neighbor, and not somebody who's got the same parts as you, and He raised the bar to, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it if you're going to be part of My kingdom. Now, New Testament standards when we count the works of Jesus and we count the works of the epistles and all the other letters, guess what we find out happens? New Testament standards prohibit familial intimacy. There was a, a man who was with his father's wife in the church in Corinth, and Paul tells them, kick that dude out if he won't repent, because that ain't right. That that, that The... The result of living a lifestyle of rejecting sexual standards was to be kicked out of the church, so we see that New Testament standards also prohibit, prohibit adultery. Jesus tells us it 's a sin, and not only that thinking about it is a sin same sex intimacy there are at least three different passages in the Pauline epistles, in addition to when Jesus affirms the Old Testament at least three different passages that were given that specifically state if you are sexually intimate with someone of the same sex, you are not part of the kingdom of God. And especially if you are continuing in that lifestyle and pretending like it's okay. And we also see that that lovely intimacy with pets is off the table as well. And not only is the action still prohibited but Jesus has raised the bar. So thinking about any of these things as a lifestyle is prohibited. Now, we want to be really careful and say a passing thought or inclination is a struggle. Living a lifestyle of thinking about it is a sin. And so one is a temptation to sin and the other is an outright lifestyle of sin. The temptation to sin but not falling does not mean you are unsaved it means you're human and still struggle with the sin nature within you a lifestyle of sin even one of thought means that odds are you are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that you don't really understand what salvation and sin are and your eternity is unsure so what do we do with that how can you and I avoid breaking these rules because we're all sinners and we all struggle. Well, here is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, in other words, he's saying, kind of subtly and lovingly, if you're really a Christian, if you really understand what you've been taught, if you really understand sin and salvation, you will do this. Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You see, Paul says, not only do you need to stop doing what you used to do that God has clearly prohibited, but you also need to learn how to think differently and take God's standards as your own and apply God's truth As the truth that will dictate your life. And then put on the new self. The one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. When we are talking about sexual ethics, God's standards have never changed. We don't get to look back at the Old Testament and say, that was then, but now we live under grace and love because Jesus, even in His deepest grace and love for each and every one of us, affirmed Old Testament sexual ethic and raised the bar to apply it to your mind. So how do we as Christians respond today? We understand that many of us will struggle, some of us will fall, and every believer who responds to being called out for their sin with repentance and a turning away from that sin and a turning to the new life given in Christ will be loved and accepted in the church. But if you name the name of Christ, you say, I'm a Christian and I'm saved, and you continue in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, the day may come, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when you could potentially face church discipline, which would be one of us will come to you and say, hey, this is against God's standard. Please choose differently. And you say, no. And two or three of us might come to you and say, hey, this is a against God's standard. Would you please choose differently? And you might say, no. And then all of us as a church will come to you and say, this is against God's standard. Will you choose to repent and live differently? And if at that point you say no, we might ask you to step away from tending until such a time as you're ready to come back into submission to God's standards. Not because that earns your salvation, but because that's an evidence of your genuine salvation. Now, some of you may have friends or family members that struggle with a biblical sexual ethic. If they are unsaved, relax and share the gospel. If they claim that they are saved, then it is critical that you bring them back to the true teachings of Scripture and you say to them, I know this is a struggle, but here's what God's word says. I'm here for you to help you overcome this sin. And that's what it is. Sin and rebellion. And if you continue in it, clear evidence that you don't mean what you say about Jesus. This is not easy, is it? To live a life where we hold up God's standards. Especially when it comes to something that feels so personal and so intimate as sexuality. But it's critical for us as Christians to do so. And if you're bothered or offended by anything I've said, please come talk to me and we'll try and work it out. But also understand that God's Word will not change no matter how much we argue about it. That God's standards are absolute. And no matter how much we wish they would change, they won't. Not because He is hateful, not because He is power-hungry or megalomaniacal, but because He created us, and He knows what is best for us. And so we seek to live according to the standard He has given us. So, if you've got questions, come find me. If you've got complaints, come find me, and we'll try and work things out. But guess what? We'll keep coming back to Scripture. I'm not going to argue with you about psychology. I'm not going to argue with you about biology. I'm not going to argue with you about your cousin. What I'm going to tell you is, here's what God's Word says and I believe it to be true. So, we stand with pastors and Christians in Canada and all around the world and in places in the United States like Lafayette, Indiana, which is considering a law similar to one in Canada. We stand with our brothers and sisters in saying there is an absolute standard for our sexual ethic. And guess what? All of us must live to it not just those who struggle with homosexuality or transgenderism, but also those of us who struggle with thoughts of adultery and those who struggle with pornography. We, too, must hold one another accountable to the full gamut, the full spectrum of God's sexual ethic. And so it's time for us to not just condemn others, but also to examine ourselves and seek to live according to God's standards. Now, that was Sermon 1. All right? It was kind of short it was an affirmation and a, uh, we're with you and I, I don't know that anybody will watch our live stream and I mean and care but I hope you care and I hope you, as you hear the battle over sexuality and gender in our culture that you understand it is not just some preference thing it is a biblical thing and we as Christians have a role to stand up for it especially in our own body especially amongst those who name the name of Christ. Another thing that's important to our life is the church, this gathering of believers, this place where we should find hope and we should find conviction and we should find love and we should find some hard, tough love as well. And we've talked the last couple of days that Jesus in Matthew 16, He said that He will build His church and so he is the one that is building us up, and we belong to him. And we, we learn these three things that Jesus has placed you in the local church and equipped you to serve. No one who is a believer is in this place accidentally, nor are you unable to serve the church in some need, because each and every one of us have been equipped to serve the church somehow. You are also responsible for. And two others in the local church. Which is why it's important we understand things like a biblical sexual ethic. Because when we see someone walking outside of it who says they believe in Jesus Christ and they're part of our church fellowship, it's our responsibility to lovingly call them back into fellowship and repentance. And say, get right with God and get right with the church. And understand church leaders are here to help you become faithful ministers. And faithful ministers are doing the work of the ministry inside the church and sharing Jesus outside the church. We're not here to do it all for you. I'm not the one when you have a friend, this person's red hot, they're ready to accept Jesus. Can you call him? No, you talk to him. That's your job. Share the gospel. Do the work of the ministry. It's my job to equip you. Now, I do my ministry as well, and I am responsible for sharing the gospel in my spheres of influence. But you're responsible in yours. So we learned that about the church. We're to be together because we were placed here by Jesus and equipped and given gifts to serve one another, and we're responsible for each other. And then last week we talked about the church's mission and how Jesus told us in Matthew eighteen, or excuse me, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and twenty. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The command here is not go. It is make disciples of everyone you meet. And we make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Or to to boil it down, our mission is to know God ourselves and to make him known in the world around us. So we have a picture. We know who we are. We are a church put together by God to serve one another, to care for one another, to call each other to repentance and holy living. We know our mission to know God personally, to to grow in our knowledge and relationship with Him, but also to make Him known by sharing Jesus with the world around us and calling them to relationship and teaching them about Him. So now that we know who we are and what we're supposed to do, the question is, how do we pay for it? Because the deal is that in a, this physical world that we have been brought into, there have always been the, 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 the need, there has always been the need to pay for things. Things like lights that go on and off, uh, right? Or computers that need to reboot. Uh, to, to, to pay for chairs. Aren't chairs nice? We could be sitting on the floor. We could be sitting on a floor with no carpet, you know, just concrete. We could be sitting on a dirt floor. Isn't it nice to have a church where the ministry has been supported, the the body has been equipped and given things to do the ministry? Isn't this cool? Lights, ceilings, things, food for lunch. Please come to lunch and eat. Um, Now that we know who we are and what our mission is, this mission needs to be paid for. And this boils down to free will giving. Now some churches will ask you for your, your W-2s and they will insist that you give a certain amount of money every year. Are you aware of that? Have you, Anybody have family members in a church like that? We were, we were around some churches in uh, the Green Bay area that were uh, actually, they were kicking people out of the fellowship because they hadn't turned in their financial statements yet so the church knew how much to bill them for giving. Um, <laughs> a couple of you are making faces, and it's funny. Um, so, But what, that's not scriptural. What scripture teaches us is that we as believers should be giving freely to support the church. Now, you might say, well, is that something that, that just started in the New Testament? No, it actually starts in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament has some very specific rules, and what I want to do is to start in the Old Testament so you can understand what happens in the New. So as we look back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament required that the people who belonged to God would give a tithe. Tithe literally literally means 10% of the increase. Now, what does that mean, 10% of the increase? If you own a parcel of land and you plant one bag of seed to, uh, to grow your crop... And when you're done with the harvest, you have 100 bags of seed. That means the increase is 99 bags. Some of you, you got through second grade math. I'm so proud. Yes, 99 bags. So you owe 10% of the 99 bags, not the 100. Does that make sense? You invested one bag, you got 99 back. Now, this is true in... Uh, grains, it's true in animals, it's true in vineyard produce, it was 10% of the increase. And there were three different tithes that Scripture tells God's people to participate in. So if you do math, a tithe is 10%. If there are three tithes, that's 30% of your income, except one tithe only took place once every three years. And so on average, 23% of income would go to the, 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 the temple, the people of God, to do the ministry of God. And so we'll look at these three different tithes. The first is the Levitical tithe. It's in Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 through 31. And because I knew we'd be running short on time, I didn't put it all up here. We won't read it all if you want to see it. You can check out the U version notes, which are here. You can take a quick picture of these slides so you can go back and check these out. Numbers 18 21 through 31 is the Levitical tithe. It is the annual tithe, and it provided for those who did the ministry work of the tabernacle or the temple and their families. So 10% of the income of all of God's people was sent to the temple to do the work of the ministry. And it provided for the temple work and provided food for all of the temple workers. The Levites, specifically. A whole tribe of Israel who was dedicated to doing the work of the temple and the ministry that was necessary. And so we're not talking about one big fat cat pastor or priest sitting in Jerusalem going... Bring me your tithe. But what we've got are actually thousands of people who are supported by this giving amongst the people of God. What's interesting is the actual priests and their sons ate the the animals and grain and wine that were offered as sacrifices. So the priests got the premium giving, And then all of the Levites doing the work of the ministry received 10% of all of the increase amongst the people of Israel. Now there's a second tithe, and I like this one. This is like my favorite of the tithes. The festival tithe. It's it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. It was an annual tithe, so another 10%. So we're already talking 20% of an income going towards the work of ministry, except this one's really cool because it's an annual tithe, including animals, and you were supposed to take 10% of your increase, and you were supposed to go to the temple or the city where the, 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 the tabernacle was, and you were supposed to have feasts with everybody there. So everybody was supposed to bring 10% of of what their land had produced, 10% of the increase of their, their uh, animals and slaughter them. And all of us, were suppo- or all of the people of Israel, they would sit together and feast and celebrate God's goodness. I like that one, don't you? Some, some, some scholars call it the vacation tithe. Um, now, that doesn't mean Disneyland. What it means is a spiritual vacation or an extended Sabbath to spend time with God. Can you imagine setting apart 10% of your income just to do spiritual things for the sake of your own spiritual life and the spiritual life of your family? Imagine how different our lives might be if 10% of our income went to sending our children to camp, going to to a a retreat together (laughs) as a family. Going on marriage retreats. If we set apart ten percent of our income, Shelley is 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 all in because I don't ever vacation. So um, she'd love she'd even love to go to a church camp with me or, yeah, I'll try. <clears throat> no, it won't happen. <laughs> it's hard for me to miss a Sunday. I like being here. But um, so there's this festival tithe, ten percent set apart to just celebrate God. And then there is the once every three years tithe in Deuteronomy 14 that's to be taken to the closest city and stored for the poor, the needy, the orphans, the widows and the, uh, the resident alien. So people who were not citizens of Israel or the poor and the uncared for otherwise, 10% at once every three years taken to help meet their needs. Now what's interesting is when we get to modern church life, we kind of have these, these kind of like all flip-flopped. We, we think we should give like all kinds of money for the poor and very little for ministry or celebration. And uh, so in the Old Testament, it, it, it's pretty clear how they're ranked that number one in giving significance is the, to the tabernacle and the temple, 10% of income. Number two is to celebrate God's goodness, of income was to go just once a year, go get together with other believers and celebrate the goodness of God. An extended Sabbath, if you will, a resting period. And then finally, in smaller measure, as a giving, now what's interesting is uh, there were actually provisions made for the needy throughout the year, every year. The Jewish people were only supposed to harvest most of their crops, but to leave the corners of the fields for the poor to come and harvest for themselves, to leave the corners of their vineyards for the poor to come and harvest for themselves. What we've done is we've gotten it all mixed up and we think we have to give a lot of money so that people can have their needs met by doing nothing instead of making provision on a regular basis for them to earn with dignity the things that they need. And so this is Old Testament tithing. This is when you go from Genesis to Malachi. This is what the people of God are supposed to be doing. And, and when we get to, to Malachi, to, to kind of just set it apart, a lot of us have probably heard preachers use a verse in Malachi. Malachi <clears throat> chapter 3. And uh, Malachi is actually, the people of Israel had been out of town for a number of years. They had been taken captive by uh, a couple of different empires and they were finally getting home and they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple and they were supposed to be faithful and um, they weren't so much. And, and, and the problem was is that they were, they were building their own nice homes back up but they were neglecting the ministry of God. And, and what God says to them is um, <clears throat> this. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 3 of Malachi, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask, by not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions? You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Verse 10, bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. The people of Israel, they were supposed to be living these three tithes. These three aspects of giving. And they were neglecting all of them, but especially the tabernacle or temple tithe. They were building their own homes up while the house of God essentially suffered. And the ministry that people were called to suffered. And a lot of pastors will use Malachi 3.10 to say, see, you need to give 10% of your income. That's not for us. Because as we move into the New Testament, things shift a little bit. In giving in the New Testament, we're given some different standards, some different rules. First of all, there is no mention of the tithe in the New Testament other than in the Gospels as records of Jesus' teaching to Jewish people. Okay, so it's never reiterated for people who are brought into the kingdom of God, Jews or Gentiles that tithing is necessary. Never. But there are three areas of giving that we see specifically mentioned in Scripture. The first one is the support for those in need. And the reason I put this one first is because it's got a lot more verses related to it. But what's interesting is this wasn't just a general support for everybody and their cousin. This was intentional giving to persecuted believers who were struggling to make ends meet because they were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes, they were losing their hometowns because they had accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is not giving just for the sake of being kind or trying to convince people that Jesus loves them. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we see that we're supposed to give to people in order to try and convince them to be saved. It is instead this clear teaching that we give to other believers and meet their needs, and we're generous with everyone we meet, like the good Samaritan, because that's what it means to be a believer, is to be generous and gracious and kind and giving. But specifically, we should be giving to church to support one another in need. Now what's interesting, what what that means is, that when a brother or sister in our own fellowship struggles to pay an electric bill because they've been sick for a month, who should be stepping up? Us. And we do from time to time. But our benevolence budget is dwarfed by other things that we support. And that's not bad, but it means there's room for us to get better. There's room for us to improve as believers. We should be giving to meet one another's needs when there are genuine needs. Now, if somebody just doesn't want to work, Scripture clearly teaches if a person doesn't want to work, they shouldn't eat. Buck up, use your hands, and earn something. And when you've done your best, if there's still lack, we will give to help make up for the lack. That's the first thing we see is Christians supporting other believers, specifically those who are under persecution. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, James. These are all circumstances where the support for believers is paramount. Especially, James tells us, real religion, the religion that's pure, supports widows and orphans. Widows and orphans in our midst as Christians. Acts chapter 6 tells the story of the first deacons. And what was their job? To make sure all the widows' needs were met. Not every widow in Jerusalem, but all the widows who were believers. Our first responsibility in giving is to meet one another's needs. Second thing that gets mentioned. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Acts 20, 35. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak. By laboring like this. In other words, to work with your own hands. That's what Paul had just been talking about. I didn't take money from you guys. I worked with my own hands and I showed you by example. We work hard with our own hands in order to meet the needs of the weak. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that's supposed to be a quote from Jesus. Some of you who are uh, astute scholars, you might go, I don't see that anywhere in the Gospels. And I will tell you you're right. Right? But the Apostle Paul would not make that up in this early stage of Christianity. It was likely an oral tradition handed down to him. The teachings of Christ heard by somebody who was there, who taught others, but it just didn't get recorded in one of the Gospels. Do you realize, little aside, this is a freebie. Sorry, I shouldn't give too many of these away because then we'll be like to the 2.30 and John will be unhappy. But freebie, do you realize that the Gospels do not record everything that Jesus did, but they record enough to help us know who he is and what he did for us. And that's their intent, not to record every last little detail of Jesus' life. And Jesus did walk to the outhouse, and 20 minutes later, verily, he did return. Right? But instead it records exactly what we need to know about Jesus. He is the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came and lived a perfect and sinless life, died on the cross for your sins and mine, rose again on the third day, so that whoever would believe on Him would be saved and have eternal life. And that's what they intend to teach us. And so the fact that there's a teaching of Jesus that's not recorded in one of the Gospels, we should go, I wish I could know them all. Can't wait to get to heaven and hear the first hand, account, hand accounts of all of Jesus' teachings. That will be so cool. Won't it be great in, in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth? Maybe there'll be just like a YouTube dedicated to Jesus. Like, like it'll be Jesus tube or something. And we'll just get to, we'll get to see him live his life five minutes at a time. Maybe not all the parts. But, you know, the important parts. The, the parts that we miss in the Gospels. Anyway, freebie, we're done with that one. Second thing, or third thing... Second thing, second thing that's mentioned in scripture. Yes, second thing is the support for missions. Philippians chapter four, verses 14 through 16 says that the Philippian church sent help to Paul and you might go, well, but Paul was an apostle. So they were like supporting a pastor. No, Paul was doing missions work. And so when Paul got himself in a city and he sh- was struggling to make his own way because he couldn't make enough money working with his own hands, the Philippian church would send him money. And it records at least two different circumstances where he- they sent him money as he was sharing the gospel. 3 John 5-8. through 3 John 5-8. through There's no one or two in front of that because there are only uh, uh, 16 verses in 3 John. And so it's 3 John, the 5th and the 8th verse. It says uh, that we should be supporting those who are on mission, who are coming and sharing the good news of Jesus and not taking any money from, from pagans. And it says this, Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. In other words, why do we support missionaries? Because when we support missionaries, it's like we're there on the field with them, sharing the good news of Jesus without actually having to eat weird things. And how cool is that? that we're co-workers in the truth. And some of you, that's the only mission trip you'll ever be able to take because you you're like, Shelly can't get immunizations. You know, she'll die. And so that's her mission trip. Support missions. Care for a child through World Vision or Compassion or some other organization. And maybe they're not perfect in everything they teach or believe, but it's part of sharing Jesus because they do share the gospel well. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. The third thing that's mentioned in the New Testament is support for ministry. And when we talk about support for ministry, it is specifically related to support for the elders of the church who are equipping the saints and doing the work of the ministry. But we can kind of extrapolate that out to paying for the things that make necessary or make ministry possible, right? So paying for the things that make ministry possible. Like what? Well, you look around the room. What do we need to make ministry possible in our own midst? Well, we don't need a lot, but we like a few things. Right? The chairs. Nice little perk. So we have to give if we want chairs as part of our ministry. Lights. We have to give if we want lights as part of our ministry. Sunday school curriculum. We need to give if we want Sunday school curriculum as part of our ministry dynamic. A pastor or two or four, depending upon the size of the church. We need to give to make those things possible. And so while these verses speak specifically, to pastors and supporting the teaching elder, it can be drawn out to say anything that we deem necessary to do the work of ministry in our local congregation, we should be giving to support it. And, and that means if you've got a pet project, maybe you need to give to support it. Maybe that's where you need to give extra to support. And so we, we get these three different areas then as guidelines. Uh, 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 we've got giving for the poor, Giving for missions and giving for ministry. And then, then what are the guidelines? Well, in the Old Testament, it was 10% of this, and, and then another 10%, and then one 10% every three years. But we don't have those standards. We don't have a tithe specifically. Here's what we're told to do. Now, about the collection for the saints. So this is specifically about supporting impoverished believers Paul says this about giving. He says, Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. So this is to the church in Corinth, and so this is the same thing he instructed every church when it came to giving. On the first day of the week, which is when? Sunday. It was an easy question. Yes, Sunday is actually the first day of the week. If you, That's right. The first day of the week. It's not Monday. It's Sunday. I'm sorry if that changes your whole worldview. Flip your calendar around. Your calendar should have Sunday all the way on the left, not Monday. Just saying. Um, On the first day of the week, the rich people are supposed to give. No, it says, each one of you is to set something aside. In other words, the first day of the week, every believer in the church is supposed to be setting something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. So every week, every believer should make the choice to set some resources aside in keeping with how they are prospering so that no collection will need to be made when I come. So when we just take this one short passage and we begin to understand giving, we understand it should be regularly, the first day of every week. It should be intentional, every believer setting aside something and let's not say it's based upon our income, but let's say it's based upon the blessing in our life. I mean, income is just a part of that. Do you realize that? Free time is a blessing, and we should give of it. The strengths and abilities that we've been given, blessings, and we should give freely of those regularly. And so we should be giving regularly and intentionally and based upon the blessings that we've received in our life. Second Corinthians 9.7, this kind of sums up what it is to give in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says, Every person or each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, if you are giving with the mindset of regularly, intentionally, and based upon your blessing, then when it comes time to give, you should do so according to what God has laid on your heart, and you should do it cheerfully. Not, here's $20, God. Do with it as you will. I won't have a cheeseburger. Um, you know, but, but instead, it, it is whatever you ask, God, I'll, I'll do it. and I'm going to try and do it cheerfully because I know that you love me to find cheer in giving to support the things that in Scripture you've clearly told me are important and that I should be giving to support. Now, what does that mean? It means that when we think about a tithe, when we think about 10%, and we do use the word tithe often still, tithes and offerings. When we think about 10%, that might be a fine goal for you, for you to look at, at, at the blessings in your life and say, I'd like to try and give 10% of them, 10% of my free time, 10% of my income, that's the increase, 10% of, of the blessings in my life, however that works out. It might be that that 10% is your goal, but it might be that your goal needs to be more. Uh, Everybody, well, most of us who are older were familiar with J.C. Penney. Uh, He was actually a person, not just a store, okay? So J.C. Penney was the man who started the store, and that by the end of his life, as he neared the end of his life, J.C. Penney was giving about 90% of his income to the church and living on 10%. So as he increased in wealth, instead of spending more and more on himself and keeping it at 10% that he gave to the church, he lived on the same amount of money-ish his whole life and increased his giving to the church. Now, not all of us have to do that. That is not in Scripture anywhere. Thou shalt live on 10 and give 90. But if God were to lay that on your heart right now, do you know what you would need to do? You should do as God has laid it on your heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. For some of you, it will be a stretch for you to just start giving and to give something. Some of us, maybe that, that's the thing we need to start today, is just give something. Give something. And that's okay. That's okay. And then as God lays on your heart something more, give something more. Others of you, you've been giving faithfully at the same level for years. Maybe it's time to give a little more if God lays that on your heart. But to do so, not reluctantly or out of compulsion or because Michael said so, but knowing that as you do it, you are bringing joy to God and to yourself. So if you grew up in a church that said you have to tithe, I'm going to say I don't think so. But what I am going to say is, all of it belongs to God. And when he says give more, when he says give some, please walk in faithfulness and do it cheerfully. And that brings us to our last song of the day, but also an introduction to what we're going to be participating in in our church business meeting. We are a body of believers called together, placed here by Christ, built up, gifted, given to one another, given a leadership that loves and cares and wants to see us grow in ministry, given the the responsibility for one another, we are a beautiful and amazing church and we have the ability as members and participants to go downstairs and to talk about our budget, to talk about the resources we have and to affirm the choices that are being made. So I want to encourage everybody to participate both in giving but also in spending time with us downstairs in a little while talking about what that giving is going to be going to and rejoicing in what God has done through us and is doing in us. Because I got I to tell you that in a, in a world of, eh, what God is doing in and through us, both spiritually and financially, is something to celebrate. So... Um, encourage you to do so afterwards. Would you pray with me? And then um, we'll sing together one final song before being dismissed to lunch. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you that you have been consistent all throughout Scripture, that your heart is for us as your people to support ministry, to support the poor, but also to rejoice in what you've blessed us with and not to be afraid to enjoy the fruits of this life in accordance with the righteous standards that you've given to us, we thank you for the blessings that are in our life. And though all of us have different levels of blessing, if we were to judge against one another, each of us is blessed beyond measure through your Son, Jesus. And so we thank you for him. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us and your sacrifice and your resurrection. We thank you that you called each of our names and placed us here and gifted us and made us a body, a family, a friendship. Help us to be responsible for one another in the way that you've called us to and also to do the work of the ministry that you've made us for so that we might all grow up and look more like you. And part of all that faithfulness is to give what you've laid on our hearts. And so this morning, help us to have hearts that are tender. To not be afraid to hear your voice saying give more or give at all. And then to begin to prayerfully and joyfully support the work of the ministry of our church as our church seeks to, to support missions, as our church, church seeks to do the ministry, as our church seeks to meet the needs of, of our body and, and those who are suffering in our midst. Lay in our heart how you would have us to give cheerfully. We ask that you would bless our time together here in just a few moments that we might rejoice as a church family in what you've done. Thank you so much for all you are and do. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior, and we rejoice in that. It's in your name we pray.